You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open God's Word to the Scripture reading for this morning. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. 
Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. In this morning's sermon, we're dealing with the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, article 15. Let's now turn to that and read it. Here we confess the proper attitude with respect to God's undeserved grace. This grace God owes to no one. For what could He owe to man? Who has given him first that he might be repaid? What could God owe to one who has nothing of his own but sin and falsehood? He, therefore, who receives this grace owes and renders eternal thanks to God alone. He who does not receive this grace, however, either does not care at all for these spiritual things and is pleased with what he has, or, in false security, vainly boasts that he has what he does not have. Further, about those who outwardly profess their faith and amend their lives, we are to judge and speak in the most favorable way, according to the example of the apostles, for the inner recesses of the heart are unknown to us. As for those who have not yet been called, we should pray for them to God, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. But we must by no means act haughtily, as if we had distinguished ourselves from them. Beloved Congregation of Christ, over the last week I'm sure many of us have attended the graduation ceremonies of our schools. And for many of us I think this marks the real beginning of summer. Of course, it helps that the weather has also greatly improved in the last couple of weeks. And for a lot of our young people, whether they've graduated or not, summer is the time to find a job and make some money. And I'm sure that you've heard it said in work, just as in school, there is one key ingredient, and that is attitude. Normally, you'll never do well in school if you don't have a good attitude. And in the work world, a good attitude will get you places. People with poor attitudes often get passed over when it comes to promotions and when it comes to raises. A poor attitude is a sure way to find yourself jumping from job to job to job. And so a good attitude or a good outlook is necessary for success. And that's true everywhere in life. And for us as believers, it begins with our attitude when we reflect on and when we consider God's grace towards us. That's what we confess with Article 15 of Chapter 3-4 of the Canons. God's grace calls us to a proper attitude towards God, towards others, and towards ourselves. 
Now it is rather peculiar that the canons speak about God's undeserved grace. The article begins by saying that this grace God owes to no one. Now if you think about that for a minute, that might, that might seem strange because grace, by its very definition, is unmerited favor. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. So why did the fathers of Dort add these extra words? Undeserved. A grace God owes to no one. Well, people can and they do make definitions, their own definitions for words. Changing them. Twisting them. And so the 17th century remonstrants, they redefined grace. For them, it was merited favor. They taught that with the use of their free will, people could merit or they could earn God's kindness. And against that false teaching, we have to insist that grace is God's unmerited favor. Because of what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 1 and 2 and elsewhere and many other places, we have to maintain that this grace God owes to nobody. God is indebted to no one. And here the canons quote from Romans 11.35, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, people only have one thing to offer God. That's their sin. Our sin is the only thing we bring to the salvation equation. And when we have that clear in our minds, then the stage is set for a proper attitude towards God. Let's look at our reading from 1 Corinthians 1 for a moment. <coughs> Paul says in verse 4, I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And then in verse 30, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. And notice, Paul does not say, I am so thankful, Corinthians, that you did your part by exercising your free will, and then God did His part, and together you got saved. Now instead, in verse 26, he tells the Corinthians to look back and see what they were when they were called. They were nothing special. They were nothing special in the eyes of the world, and they were nothing special in the eyes of God either. But God called them. God chose them. In fact, Paul repeats those words. He chose. He repeats those words three times in verses 27 and 28. God's choice, God's grace is what stands on center stage. And one of the intended purposes or results is there in verse 29, so that no one may boast before Him. God did this also that His glory would be magnified or amplified. God's grace was shown to the Corinthians so that if they would have anyone or anything to boast in, it would be the Lord and it would be His glorious grace. This whole section, verse uh, 26 to verse 31, loosely parallels the the so-called golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, 
29 to 30. And here in Corinthians, we find choosing, we find calling and justification. We find Christ as our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And just like in Romans 8, here in 1 Corinthians 1, God is the subject of all the verbs. God is the one doing the action. Brothers and sisters, this is why article 15 says, He therefore who receives this grace owes and renders eternal thanks to God alone rather than God owing us. We, in fact, owe Him. And not just a little. We are indebted to Him enormously for His grace to us. And God asks for our thankfulness. And He asks for our thankfulness to be shown with a Christian life of words and actions, praise and obedience. He asks for a thankful attitude. And so we give credit where credit is due. So, if someone asks about our testimony, which can sometimes happen, someone asks how we came to be Christians, we speak about God. We speak about how God worked through the events of our lives to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we live the Christian life, we let our words and we let our actions point to God. And that goes for every aspect of our lives, whether that be in school, whether that be in work or in leisure. We increasingly die to ourselves and what we want. And we live to God, just as Christ does. Remember, it's also there in 1 Corinthians 1, that we are in Christ. We have union with Christ by true faith. So with His Spirit in us, we live to the Father's glory like He does. Someone once said that thankfulness is a lifestyle. Those around us should see that we live thankfully each day by the grace and mercy of God. One thing we should dread most to hear somebody say would be, I never would have guessed that you're a Christian. May none of us ever, ever hear somebody say that. Article 15 goes on to speak of the attitude towards God of those who do not receive this grace. <coughs> Excuse me. There are three kinds of people we can mention here. Now the first are not explicitly mentioned here in Article 15, but because they are discussed elsewhere in the canons, I've included them. These are those who have never heard about Christ and never heard about the grace of God. We can't think that these people, that they wanted the grace of conversion and faith in Jesus Christ, that they were turned away by God, that they were denied it. Because apart from God's work, people do not go after these things. And there's a second group, those who have heard the gospel of grace but reject it. This is the person who does not care about spiritual things. And by that we mean the true spiritual things revealed in the Bible. You know, people can care about all sorts of false spiritual things. But when it comes to what the Bible says, 
then suddenly they have no interest. Here too, these people are not longing for the grace of God. They're happy to stay where they are. They simply don't care about what God has to say. And sometimes, they're direct enough to say it. That's the second group. And finally, we have the third group. These are those who profess to have received the gospel, but have not, really. And these are the hypocrites. Now, the term hypocrite, you find it in the Bible, and it comes from the Greek world of the, the stage and the theater. In the, in the Greek world of the stage and theater, a hypocrite was somebody who wore a mask, pretending to be someone that they're not. They have a false sense of security. They may have even, even convinced themselves that they are who they're not. And sometimes this false sense of security gets tied to legalism and works righteousness. They don't have God's grace, so they, they think that, that maybe they can find God's favor through their, through their own deeds. And when you ask them about God, they imagine God to be a harsh judge. He's keeping track of the things that everybody does. And when it comes to Christians, he demands that Christians keep their side of the bargain, doing all the works of the law, so that they can be saved. If we're honest, we know that this way of thinking sometimes creeps into our own circles as well. Usually these kinds of people reflect who they imagine God to be. And so they, in turn, are entirely ungracious, uncharitable towards others, whether they're, they're Christians or not, doesn't matter. These are the kind of people who make major issues out of minor things. Now there's a story, perhaps you've heard it before, maybe read it somewhere, a story about an expedition to the North Pole. The expedition, of course, was trying to head north. And using their equipment, they chartered a heading and they set off. A few hours after they'd been traveling, they calculated their position and found that they were further south than when they started. And this happened because they were on a sheet of ice that was drifting southward faster than they were walking northward. The same thing happens with legalism, brothers and sisters. We think that our so-called piety is bringing us closer to God when the reality is that we're drifting further and further away. And our hypocrisy gets exposed, especially in our ungracious dealings with others. Of course, the opposite can also happen. We can be lulled into a false sense of security through believing in what we call cheap grace. Cheap grace means that we, we believe that we're forgiven and now, hey, we can live however we want. Those who believe this can often be heard to repeat the mantra, we're under grace, not law. Such thinking is just as unbiblical as legalism. It forgets what God says in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Both cheap grace and legalism are roadblocks to the narrow way. 
They divert us to the broad way that leads to destruction. Brothers and sisters, there is a way forward around these roadblocks. And the way forward is to look to Jesus Christ. He is the source of God's grace at the beginning of our salvation. He is also the source of God's grace as we live the Christian life every day. Sometimes we speak of the indicative and the imperative of the gospel. Indicative and imperative. The indicative is that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. The indicative is that we are in Christ. Now read the first two chapters of Ephesians and you'll see that indicative laid out very beautifully. But then there's also the imperative. You could also say the command. Be who you are in Christ. Live out of your union with Christ. And you see that especially in the last three chapters of Ephesians. All of that is tied to the proper attitude of believers with respect to God's undeserved grace. And that attitude is a praise-filled, thankful lifestyle before God. Now when we think about God's grace, we're also called to a proper attitude towards others. And here too, our reading from 1 Corinthians 1 has some pointed words for us. Right away in in verse 2, Paul tells the Corinthians that they're not the only ones who have been called by God in Christ Jesus to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to verses 10 through 17, we find Paul tackling a particular problem in the Corinthian church. There were divisions among the believers. Some claimed to be of Apollo, some of Paul, others Peter, and still others Christ. And in verse 10, Paul pleads with them that there would be no divisions and that they would work together towards perfect unity in the faith. After all, all of these Christians, they're members of Christ's body in Corinth. (coughs) In Article 15, We reflect this biblical truth by confessing that about those who outwardly profess their faith and amend their lives, we are to judge and speak in the most favorable way according to the example of the apostles, for the inner recesses of the heart are unknown to us. Well, one of those examples of the apostles is there in in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, we have to remember that this was addressed to the church in Corinth. It's not a general epistle. It's an epistle directed to a specific local congregation of Christ. So if we're going to apply this text to ourselves, it only makes sense that we begin here with our own local church. We are to strive against having divisions or schisms in this congregation. We are to speak about one another in the most favorable ways. And we are to deal with one another charitably, always thinking the best of one another. We can't take things a step further. We also should make efforts at recognizing and maintaining the unity of the faith with others too, beyond our local congregation. 
Imagine a set of concentric circles. In the center circle is the local church, us. And then we have another circle beyond that central circle. And there we have the Federation of Churches, the Canadian Reformed Churches, and and then outside of that, then we also have the churches with whom we have ecclesiastical fellowship, another circle. And then outside of that, we also have others who, who also profess the same faith, but with whom we may not have contact or very little contact. Note that this text does not speak about unity with those who may be false teachers, those who are false churches or sects, those who get the gospel wrong on important points. Paul has other words and other places for those kinds of situations. But we'll leave that for some other time. For now, let's notice that it is a biblical notion to strive against schism and division with those who profess the same faith. This is important for our churches today, especially as we work towards full federative unity with the United Reformed Churches. Some of you are aware that there is a website that's been put up by some concerned people from elsewhere in the valley. If you're not familiar with that website, you can find the address in the liturgy sheet. Now, perhaps these people have some legitimate concerns. Perhaps. And this is not the time and place to discuss those concerns. What I do want to point out, and point out with a great deal of sadness, is the unbiblical and even sinful way that these people are publicly speaking about our brothers and sisters in the United Reformed Church and other sister churches. For instance, on this website, several mentions are made of 1 John 4, verse 6. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That text is repeated several times through this website. And the implication is made on this website that sister churches, such as the United Reformed Churches, they're not from God. Think about it. If they are not from God, who are they from? There's no middle ground. There's no neutral position. We are of God. They must be from Satan. To say this is arrogant and sectarian. It goes against what we confess here in Article 15 of the Canons of Dort. It also goes against what we confess in Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. Brothers and sisters, this is simply not right. Sure, you might disagree with the practices of the United Reformed Churches on certain points. But to say that they are not from God, you cannot say that. You cannot suggest it. You cannot even imply it. Our confession forbids that attitude because Scripture forbids it. Rather, we are to speak charitably and favorably about our United Reformed brothers and sisters. 
because they outwardly profess the same faith that we do. They profess the Reformed faith. They have amended their lives. This is Christ in them. Christ's work in them. His Holy Spirit is living in them. And we should praise Christ for what we see with them. Wouldn't we want them to do the same with us and with our churches? And so there are those whom God has called and who have already responded in faith. But then Article 15 goes on to speak about those who have not yet been called. What should be our attitude towards them? Well, simply put, it should be prayerful. When we have family, when we have friends or fellow students or co-workers who have not yet been converted by God, we should be regularly praying for them. In our prayers, we should be mentioning them by name. Bring them before the throne of grace. God created the world at the beginning and He still has the power to make new creations in Christ. Something which is just as miraculous, something which is just as awe-inspiring as the original creation. And finally, this article speaks about a proper attitude towards ourselves. It says, but we must by no means act haughtily as if we had distinguished ourselves from them. And then here refers to the as yet unconverted. Our proper attitude must be one of humility. Thinking about, considering, and really embracing the doctrines of grace should produce more humility in our lives. And this definitely has a bearing on how we view others who come among us who may be coming to church for the first time. You know, we're not making a helpful contribution to Christ's church gathering work. When a newcomer comes into our church service or into our building, and the first thing somebody does is come up to them and blast them for what they're wearing. Once you know you're going to church, you shouldn't be wearing that. Or perhaps it's not our words. Perhaps it's our nonverbal communication. Glaring and staring. All those kind of things. They, they send the clear message too. Hey, you just don't fit in here. You don't belong here with us. That's actually a kind of haughtiness too. The kind that is warned against here in our confession. Rather, brothers and sisters, we should be warm and we should be welcoming. If we see a newcomer before the service, Rejoice in your heart that God has brought somebody here with us. Go up to them and greet them. And then just don't leave it at that. Be willing to show hospitality to them. And also, pray for them. As you're sitting in the pew waiting for the service to begin, pray for them. Pray that God would work in them during the worship service, just as you would pray for yourself and you would pray for your family. So, brothers and sisters, a proper attitude is a matter of the heart. Where is your heart? Has it been set on fire by God's grace? Living in union with Christ, our heart has to be where His heart is. Entirely passionate about God's glory. Entirely passionate about serving others. Speaking favorably and charitably. Praying regularly. Having our heart where Christ's is 
means being entirely passionate about knowing ourselves for who we really are. Sinners, redeemed by God's grace, incorporated into Christ by faith, destined to share in His glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.